pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that you have given us once again to lift our hearts before you, to pour out our hearts to you, and to hear and experience you pouring out your word upon us. Pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are docile to the Spirit's leading in our lives through the ministry of your word. I pray, Father, you would protect us from error. I pray for all of the married saints who are here, every couple who knows Christ. Father, I pray that they would be eager to hear what your word has to say to them. Lord, I, I say that not only to them, but to me. And Lord, I need these things. I need to be reminded again and again the high calling of being a, a Christian husband. Father, I pray that you would enable us, especially the men in this group today, that we would leave here not unchanged, not as, as someone who has heard the word and has not obeyed it, but rather, Father, that we would hear and obey for our own joy and for the glory of Christ as his magnificence is put on display through godly, joyful marriages. Lord, I pray that our children, as they look forward to the future when one day perhaps they will be married, that these truths will, will etch themselves upon their hearts and that they would be equipped not only to live a life of marriage that pleases you, but to choose a godly mate. No, oh, Father, we pray that you'd be glorified in that as well. Well, Father, bless our time together now in your word. We give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians proclaim the preeminence of Christ to the world by how we follow and how we lead. We've been working our way through Paul's epistle to the Colossians most recently, and we have found ourselves up against that section in chapter 3 where Paul speaks to the issues of marriage and family. He doesn't say very much here, but it did seem appropriate to me since uh, we've just launched a new church plant and since uh, there are so many new people. Wait until wait next week when we have our uh, membership, we, we introduce new members. I, I'm pretty sure they're going to stretch from that door to that door, and Rodney, you may need to open that door. Um, it's amazing to see what the Lord is doing here. Uh, it is no secret that the ideal marriage God designed and Adam and Eve enjoyed for a short time has drifted a long ways from paradise. It's been 10,000 years since the first wedding of a man and a woman in holy matrimony before the eyes of God. And while the institution of marriage has somehow managed to survive, some predict that it won't be long until it goes the way of the dinosaur, leaving hardly a, a fossilized wedding band behind. If you read the newspapers and see the grocery store tabloids, you, you might be tempted to believe such dire predictions about the demise of marriage 
And there's no denying the fact that marriage has all but lost its place of reverence and honor in society, especially American society, a place that it once enjoyed for a long time. And you know the statistics. I mean, roughly one out of every two marriages ends in divorce. One of every three babies is born outside uh, of marriage. And uh, one out of every four children live in single-parent homes. The practice of cohabitation today, rather than marriage, exceeds anything that we could have imagined only a few decades ago. And virtually every family in America has been touched by the disintegration of marriage, and divorce is easier to obtain now than it's ever been. In fact, in Seattle, it's been in a lot in the news lately for other reasons, but one of the weird things that has come out of Seattle is uh, one, one lawyer has, uh, has, has come up with a way to have a quick and easy marriage. He calls it the Dissolve It Yourself website. And the website is called completecase.com. A few years ago, he had already estimated that his services had aided a thousand couples to uncouple. The estranged husbands and wives need only to agree on a few property and custody issues, fill out some forms, pay the $249 fee, and it's over. And cast aside as a lump of unwanted garbage. And what about all the millions of children of divorced parents? Well, many of them have grown up to view marriage not as a means of joy and fulfillment and lifelong happiness, but rather as a debilitating disease that they hope they never catch. As a result, fewer young people are committing to marriage, and those who do generally wait to do so until they're significantly older than their parents did. And some have taken it upon themselves to kind of reinvent the institution of marriage completely. There's an example in World Magazine several years ago that in the Netherlands, uh, probably 15 years ago, as best I can tell, a young woman by the name of Jennifer Hose, H-O-S-E, planned what has become known as the first postmodern marriage. At her wedding, she was both bride and groom. She told reporters, we live in a me society, hence it is logical that one promises to be faithful to oneself. The wedding plans included a $22,000 reception for their relatives, for her, I shouldn't say their relatives, her relatives. One commentator asked, I wonder, he said, if she will fall for the postmodern rage of adopting a double-barrel name like Jennifer Hose Hose, for example. And what if she ceases to like herself at some point? Will she divorce? And, and is that an option? And, and which Hose will get the car? Well, it's easy to poke fun at such absurdity, but the reality of what is happening in marriage or to marriage in our day is tragic beyond measure. And that's nothing to laugh about. And honestly, the real tragedy, and the reason I, I have a love-hate relationship with the message that I'm going to give you this morning, we're talking about men in the home and how they are called to be faithful. That's, that's hard. It's hard for you to hear. It's hard for me to preach. I, I, sus 
I, I would submit that it's harder for me to preach it than it is for you to hear it. <laughs> Nevertheless, the upside of getting to preach it is that I know for a fact it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be a misery. It doesn't have to be something you don't want to go home to. Marriage can and should be a means of tremendous fulfillment and satisfaction and joy. That's what God designed it to me to be. And frankly, I think Jennifer Hose has unwittingly put her finger on the problem. The reality of what has happened in marriage in our day is tragic beyond measure. And the real tragedy, as I said, is it, it doesn't have to be this way. Marriage can and should be a means of tremendous joy. The main reason marriage breaks down, as Hose kind of touches on unwittingly, the main cause is that we are so committed to undying faithfulness, not to our spouse, but to ourselves when we get married. We enter marriage with thoughts of, what's in it for me? Will this arrangement make me happy, satisfy my desires, and enhance my joy? Many marriages are grounded upon the fundamental commitment to me. Remember Stuart Scott saying, I, I realized that when uh, me and Zandra, his wife, got married, that they would be one flesh. But the way he understood that is, he's the one. It's all about me. The other person is there only to help actualize the fulfillment of my dreams. And if my spouse ever gets between me and my first love, namely me, it's over. Or at least there's conflict. You merely have to read James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 to get the diagnosis and the x-ray of the heart on that issue. We speak about all of this as if it were a modern phenomenon, but of course, married men and women have struggled with these things since Adam and Eve were ushered out of paradise so many years ago. And so whenever the Apostle Paul writes about Christian marriage, he attacks the problem, not at the surface, but at the root. If your marriage is struggling this morning, the most probable cause is that one or both of you secretly believes the marital universe, your marital solar system, revolves around you. You probably, though perhaps unwittingly, view your mate as a mean to your, means to your own happiness. Your goal is to get him or her to do the things that enhance your life and bring you fulfillment, and secure your happiness. But Paul says that's exactly the wrong approach. If you want your marriage to turn from paradise lost to paradise regained, you've got to start by recalibrating your commitments. And though it may sound counterintuitive at first, you actually need to shift your focus from pleasing self to pleasing the Lord, and from serving self to serving your spouse. You see, the real issue in marriage, all marriage conflict, is, is never a com compatibility, com I always say that word wrong, compatibility problem. It's not a compatibility problem. It's a lordship problem. It's a lordship problem. 
Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to obey? Who are you committed to? If your commitment is to serve yourself, you're headed for disaster. But if you commit to serving the Lord of your marriage in obedience to his word, you will discover the path to joy that the world can only dream of. Paradise lost really can become paradise regained. You may say, what does that kind of commitment look like? Well, that's a great question. Paul offers the answer in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Now, let me just make this clear. I realize we're chipping away at the book of Colossians. But Paul doesn't say much in Colossians. And let me remind you also that he's writing these two letters at the same time, and he expects both churches to exchange the letters so they both get what Paul fully intended. And so I choose Ephesians rather than this first section of Colossians chapter 3, even though our study is primarily in Colossians, because Paul says very little about the husband's role and even the wife's role, but today's focus on the husband's role in Colossians chapter 3. But in Ephesians chapter 5, he says a lot. He says a lot. So in Ephesians 5, 21, this is a great place to look. In, in marriage... As in the family, commitment takes on the form of selfless ministry. It's the same kind of ministry that Jesus engaged in on the night he was betrayed, the night that he was going to be arrested, the night that he established the Lord's table and shared the last Passover with them. You remember what he did that night when he first got there. He took his robe off, wrapped himself in a towel, and and wash their feet. And he also, he also reminded them. He said, you call me Lord, and you are right. There was no doubt who in the room was the leader. It was the one who had stripped himself down and became the servant of all. Under the authority of Christ, this mindset, I willingly and joyfully choose to rank myself under my spouse for his or her good. I come to this marriage asking not what can I get from my spouse, but what can I give to her? How can I meet her needs? How can I serve her? How can I make her load a little lighter, her day a little brighter? What does it mean for the wife? Well, as we saw last time, it means that the path uh, back to paradise begins with submission. It means submitting to her husband's headship in the home. Specifically, and I'm adding to what was said last time, it means respecting him as God's appointed leader, protector, provider, even if he's an unbeliever. It means relating to him in a way that resembles the way Christ relates to the church. It means giving him honor, support, help, and encouragement. It means never belittling him or making his flaws a public spectacle, but speaking well of him for his good. And as a demonstration of the gospel, it means being a good manager of the home when, he, when he's gone. It also means respectfully pointing him back to the word of God when he drifts away from it and falters, knowing that he will incur a stricter judgment from the Lord. It means praying for him, 
and seeking the Lord's blessing upon his life. It means pursuing personal holiness and the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. You're familiar with all of these things. And that's what a submissive wife looks like. And we had we read uh, Proverbs 31 this morning as well. Thought that was an appropriate text. But you know what? The kind of industry that you see in that wife taking care of uh, her husband is the same level of industry that husbands should have in taking care of their wives. There's probably no better picture for men other than Christ in the Word of God than Proverbs 31. That's the kind of submission that God requires of the wife. But what about the husband's role in marriage? Well, in Colossians 3.19, Paul simply writes, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Now let me give you a hermeneutical principle here. Whenever you see the Word of God identifying a whole category of people and warning of a particular thing, it's because that whole category of, a, of people has a problem with that thing. And so here it's, men, <clears throat> love, your, love your wives and don't be embittered against them. Why does he say that? Because husbands tend to get themselves embittered against their wives. And wives have their own issues, which we talked about the last time. And then in the parallel passage in Ephesians 5.25, Paul explains the instruction to husbands. And so if you haven't turned there yet, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33. And I'm going to read this whole section, and this is where we're going to camp out today and next time. And here's what Paul says, amplifying what he started in Colossians chapter 3. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and his church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, somehow I managed to unpack most everything I wanted to say last week to the wives in, in a, and did it in a single message. I, I bled over a little bit into this message, but it's going to take at least two for the men, just because Paul has so much more to say. The first observation I want to make here is that when Paul speaks directly to husbands, we are in Ephesians 2.25. Now listen carefully to what I'm about to say. When Paul speaks about the husband, you're thinking he's going to talk to him about leadership. He's going to tell him to lead. 
And my first observation is that he does not command husbands to lead. Not in this text. And that intrigued me when I noticed that. Rather, he commands them not to lead, but to love. Now, why does he approach the subject in such a seemingly backwards way? Well, I suspect Paul knows from Genesis 3 the sinful propensity of wives is to undermine their husbands, and the sinful propensity of husbands is to lord their authority over their wives, be controlling and demeaning and embittered against them. And so instead of telling them to lead, they already knew they were supposed to lead. Even in that culture, men understood that they were supposed to lead. And so rather than keeping on a command to lead, which would perhaps have been irrelevant, he focuses on a different issue. But married Christians should be marked by mutual ministry to one another. The fact is, husbands are to lead. They are to lead. Witness 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, where we're told that if a man doesn't lead his family, he has no business leading the church. And so the question is not, should he lead? The answer is, yes, he should lead. But really, the question that Paul is raising here is not, should he lead, but how should he lead? How should he lead? And here's what he says in Colossians, not in bitter resentment and control, but rather, Ephesians 5, in sacrificial love. In sacrificial love. Paul is telling us that when we get a new relationship with Christ, we also get a new relationship with our spouses. And, and you've got to understand, when Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus and to the church of Colossae, everybody was a first century Christian. I mean, everybody was a first generation Christian, probably. Most of them. And so here they are coming out of paganism, and uh, all kinds of bad stuff was going on in relationships that were just totally acceptable in marriage and, and raising children or all the other things. And when Paul comes on the scene and begins preaching this, telling men and women that you're not to live like you always have lived and treat one another as you always have treated one another, there's a new way. If you belong to Christ, you don't, don't live like that anymore. You have a new relationship with your spouse. There's a new attitude toward an old relationship. Whereas before Christ, you lived for self, now you live for the Lord and one another. Wives affirm their husband's leadership through church-like submission, and husbands exercise headship through Christ-like love. This is a prescription that is both hated by the world and loved by God's own. Now, I was blessed last week. I'm always nervous when I talk about the woman's role. And I was, I was really blessed beyond measure by how many women came to me afterwards and said, thank you. Thank you for saying it and thank you for being gentle. I hope it was gentle. Um, if you think this is... Uh, a radical way of thinking about marriage in our day. It's hard to imagine how radical it was in Paul's day. In the first century, the husband was the supreme authority over his house. The state held the man up to be a deity in the home. 
He had authority to do as he pleased, with whom he pleased, whenever he pleased, without threat or reprisal. And you can imagine the abuses. In the Roman culture, as in most cultures of the day, women were treated little better than slaves. In fact, uh, Marcius Cato, the famous Roman statesman of the second century B.C., wrote, if you catch your wife in, in an act of infidelity, you can kill her without a trial. But if she catches you, she would not venture to touch you with her finger. She has no rights. And I would just say, uh, it's ironic that as women and our country have pursued women's liberation and the elevation of women, it was nothing new. It started with the gospel. The elevation of women started with the gospel. Now, I'm not, I'm not giving a stamp of approval on everything that's in women's liberation. A lot of that's just gone to, to seed, to say the least. <clears throat> in an ancient love letter from a husband to his pregnant wife, Roman uh, husband, we read this. This is him writing to his pregnant wife. If, good luck to you, you should bear offspring. If it is a male, let him live. If female, expose it. And the rest of the letter was filled with sweet nothings, as if this was no big deal. Expose it, meaning take the baby out and put her in the woods so that the wolves will have their way. Demosthenes said, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and having a faithful guardian for all of our household affairs. Xenophon said it was the husband's aim that a wife might uh, see as, be seen as little as possible and hear as little as possible and ask as little as possible. In these early centuries, marriages were virtually meaningless, and the husband had absolute rule and freedom to do as he pleased. The man wielded ultimate and sometimes tyrannical authority over his house, and the state's full approval was behind him, just as our state approves the slaughter of millions of babies every year. But in the household of faith, in families whose God is the Lord, things are to be radically different. In the Christian home, the husband is not to lead like a Roman soldier. That ambition is too low, too base, too unworthy a goal for one who is privileged to be called a child of God. No, the Christian husband is to lead his wife like Christ leads his church. And that means he discards the scepter of a king and picks up the basin and towel of a servant. He is to, do, he is to love his wife as, as does Christ love the church and who gave himself up for her. We've talked about this before, that the phrase here, the Greek word, paradidomi, gave himself up for her is the same word that's used in the Gospels when Pilate was turning Jesus over, giving him up to the soldiers. Except here in, Galatia, in Ephesians 5, um, Paul is saying that this is what Jesus did to himself for our sakes, for his bride. 
He is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And beloved, this is exactly what happened when Jesus began his ministry. Everywhere Jesus traveled and the gospel was embraced, the status of women was elevated. This was true in Paul's ministry as well. And to this day, where there is a biblical church and Bible-saturated men, women are esteemed and honored and cared for and loved. It's one of the things that makes Christians different. Now, we've already seen what the submission of a spirit-filled Christian wife is to look like, but what is the love of a spirit-filled husband to look like? Well, there are four kinds of love that I want to talk about, which will lead a husband to serve his wife. To be plain, his love for her is to be sacrificial. These are the four kinds of love. Sacrificial, which is the one we'll talk about today. Next week, we'll talk about it's a purifying love, it's an attentive love, and it is an unbreakable love. The godly Christian husband is to lead his wife with sacrificial love. The radical nature of the love of a Christian husband ought to have, that he ought to have for his wife is illustrated not by the Roman soldier, but rather by the living Christ. Far from being the family tyrant or deity, the Christian husband is to take his cues from the Son of God himself who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A Christian husband's love for his wife, first of all, is to be sacrificial. In other words, he is to die to self. He should value his wife's needs above his own needs. Her desires should be seen as on the same par with his desires. Her opinions as just as important as his own. And as she is ranking herself under him in submission, he ranks himself under her in sacrificial service and love, even as he leads. Now let's make this practical. What does dying to self in marriage look like? Now let me, let me just flesh some of this out by way of example and application, and you could add a hundred more, no doubt. But here's a few. First, what does a husband's sacrificial love look like? It looks like, first of all, it looks like giving up time at the office or on the golf course or at the lake or whatever captures your interest. And you do it simply to accompany your wife in doing what she is interested in doing. I mean, if she wants you there, she may not want you to go shopping with her or, or whatever it is. And uh, then, then be joyful about just letting her do it by herself. Uh, that might mean taking, taking her shopping without murmuring. It might mean taking the time to fix a leaky faucet or a broken appliance in the Kirk house for a period of about 16 years. It meant changing thousands upon thousands of diapers. <clears throat> uh, years ago, I tried to take a shot at cracking how many diapers, you know, with seven children, how many we, we changed, and I don't remember the number, but it was worth forgetting. <laughs> <laughs> it may require any number of things, being a sacrificial servant, leader, 
The point is, husbands are called to serve even as they lead. Second, sacrificial love looks like prayer. Loving your wife like Christ loves the church means that you'll pray for her like Jesus prays for us. Hebrews tells us that Christ always lives to make intercession for us, his church, his bride. Do we pray for our wives? Do you pray, men, for your wife? Christian husband, do you love your wife through prayer? Do you seek the Lord about her spiritual needs, her need for wisdom and strength to manage the children at home? Are you praying about the pressures that she is under and and her friendships, her love for Christ? Do you pray with her? Yes, it takes time to do this. And if you're going to pray with her, you've got to have at least a functioning relationship with her. And this is what it means to be sacrificial. Sacrificial can mean 10,000 things. Do you know when she needs a break, a word of encouragement, an affirmation of your love? Does she know that you treasure her above everything else? Do you spend time with her just to affirm that she's the priority in your life? Do you notice when she's down or hurting? Are you attentive to her? Kent Hughes writes, I've seen couch potatoes, speaking of husbands, who order their wives and children around like the Grand Sultan of Morocco. Adulterous misogynists with the domestic ethics of Jabba the Hutt, who cow their wives with Bible verses. By the way, nothing, in my counseling ministry with couples, nothing has been more offensive to me than that. When men use scripture to manipulate their wives, it's disgusting, and it's wrong. You wanna, you wanna make your children hate the Bible? Use it on your wife to beat her down. These are insecure men whose wives do not dare to go to the grocery store without permission or purchase anything without his permission. And such men even tell their wives how to dress. Men, don't treat your wife like that. For the glory of God and your own joy, be attentive to her needs. Treat her with precious dignity that she deserves as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And finally, the sacrificial love means that you remain faithful to her. Man, let me make this clear. Any woman who is not your wife is off limits to you. Your flesh may tempt you in a variety of immoral ways, but you must die to those thoughts and feelings. In Paul's words, you must put them to death. And this applies not only to real women that you know or have seen, but also to any that you may find through some explicit media. You know what I'm talking about. Man, pornography is way out of bounds in a Christian marriage. And don't give your wife any lame excuse about if she participates in it with you, it's okay. It's not okay. That's nothing but an obvious attempt to dress up a crock of putrefied lust 
and the Lord hates it. If you're dabbling in that stuff, perhaps you need to question whether or not you belong to the Lord. And if you find in your heart that you really believe you're a Christian and you find yourself enslaved, I've got good news for you. There are quite a number of men in this church who can come beside you, who are trained and willing and eager to help you. The woman that God has given you is a precious gift. Treat her that way. Not only in your outward expressions of sacrificial love, but also in the secret places of your heart. Man, Christian marriage is to be permeated with sacrificial love. The same kind of love Christ had for his church when he gave himself up for her. And so... The husband's love is to be a sacrificial love, but it's also to be a purifying love. And we'll talk about that next time. In conclusion, man, I, I realize that being reminded of God's high call on your life, and the standard for Christian husbands can feel unreachable, unreachable and heavy. And there is a heaviness about it. It is a high calling. It is something that we should take seriously, but let me remind you that everything God commands, he also gives by his grace. And there is nothing that he calls you to do that you are incapable of doing if you have the Spirit of God. And if you have Jesus, then you do have the Spirit of God. That's why Paul could say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And just another word of encouragement, and that is that I, I know if you've been here for a while, you've heard me say this before, but God doesn't expect you to be perfect, but he does expect you to be growing. One of my favorite phrases in the original language is translated um, repent. In the original language, it's a little different. It's repent and keep on repenting. I love that passage because it tells me that the Lord knows that we are but dust, that we are frail people, and that we tend to confess sin and then find ourselves back in Romans 7, the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing, and the things I want to do, I find that I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death? And then chapter 8, verse 1, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's so important that you know that the Lord calls you daily. Come to me, all of you who are weary and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It's so much better than the yoke and slavery of sin. For I am meek and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And so while this is a high and holy calling, it is also something that God gives you the capacity to do. Now, if you don't know the Lord today, I want to invite you to come to him by faith. If, if you think that trying to be a better husband is going to reconcile you to God or set you right before God, just know that, that that's impossible. That's not how it works. But eternal life is freely available to you 
If you would but come to Christ with empty hands, confessing that the only thing you have to offer him is your sin, declaring to him that in your heart you believe that Jesus came as God in flesh, that he lived a perfectly righteous life and died a horrific death because that's what you deserved, that all of your faith and your hope is in him. If you ask him to receive you, he will. If you ask him to forgive you, he will. If you ask him to make you a child of God, he will. He's promised it, and he is faithful. Christ himself will redeem you, reconcile you, rescue you. Come to him by grace, through faith, today. Beloved Christians, proclaim the preeminence of Christ to the world by how we follow and how we lead. Let's pray. Father, we, we all find ourselves in passages like this seeing our inadequacy. We know that Christ is adequate. Even the Apostle Paul said, who is adequate for these things? He knew that this side of heaven is nothing that we will do perfectly. I pray, Father, that you would change us in ways that are obvious, that are visible to all, that the unbelievers who know us will see in our marriages and in our homes the love of Christ and the joy that it brings. Well, Father, as a result of obeying these truths, may our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our heavenly Father to the praise of your glory in their salvation. We praise you in the name of our Savior, Jesus.